We are uh, finishing up actually a sermon series that we've been on for the last six weeks or so, and uh, we called it The Revolutionary Life Embracing Countercultural Living. And in this sermon series, we covered issues of money, we covered issues of sex, sexuality, we covered i s s u e of marriage. And today I said that it was going to be Mystery Sunday, and uh, I, I got lots of people saying that they knew what the mystery was going to be about, and so on and so forth. And uh, I have to come right out and say, first of all, it was kind of a ploy just to get you to come, okay? And I said that last week. But secondly, I actually really tried to, to, to do something a little bit different. And I'll tell you what the thought was. The thought was actually that my wife and I would team teach. I know, I know, I know. But it ain't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, see, I, I, I aim too big. I, I really wanted to do that. But the reality is my wife... Uh, doctor and work and so on and so forth. I know Michael, she's back there. And, and we really tried this week to put something together so that both of us could teach this portion together. So here's my promise. My promise is that before this year is over at some point, we will do that. Okay? y e a h We will do that. You'll get to hear her perspective so that, you know, I'm not a liar. Okay? You'll get to hear her perspective. And we'll do this team teaching thing, talking about relationship, marriage, And it'll be an opportunity for you to get to know both of us uh, better. So today I'm going I'm to go solo. And the title of today's sermon is Kissing Nonsense Goodbye. And for those of you that, that are... <laughs> uh, there's a book uh, by a guy named Joshua Harris. He, called, uh, uh, he wrote a book called what? Kissing, Dating Goodbye. And it was his attempt to give essentially a counterculture perspective towards dating within the Christian community. And, uh, and, and, and it was kind of controversial. Some people really agreed with what he had to say. Other people were like, that's just, that's just out of there. You know, that's just, I mean, that's just out there, I should say. And it's not something that people living in today's culture can relate to. Well, I'm calling today's sermon Kissing Nonsense Goodbye because I want to do a, a couple things. As I talk about singleness, as I talk about dating... And for those of you that are married saying, we should have just stayed home today. We're already married. Uh, You talked to us two weeks ago. Actually, just like when I talked about marriage, I talked to the singles. As I talk about this, I am going to address all of us that are married as well. So everybody will be included in this. My hope and my goal is this. Number one, I hope to say something today that will shock you. I hope to say some things today that you will disagree with, and I know that some of you will. I hope to say some things today that will make you think about things maybe you never thought about before. But most of all, today, I hope that you could walk out of here, whether you agree with me or not, whether you like what I have to say or not, you will think long and hard about what the Bible has to say about singleness and what the Bible has to say about relationships in general. The reality is, as I said, there are no systematic teachings in the Bible on dating. You won't find one, and the reason is because in the culture in which the Bible is written, you knew who were you going to be married to when you were three years old, okay? They, your parents basically decided that, that you were going to marry a certain person, and that was about it, okay? So you didn't have a choice, and so there is not a whole lot of things what, that the Bible has to say about dating, but there are principles that the Bible gives in regards to dating, and wisdom in relationships. I have to ask, how many of you today are either in a relationship, I'm talking about non-married people, are thinking about wanting to be in a relationship? Uh, will you raise your hand? Okay, okay, all right. 
How many of you guys are, uh, have the gift of celibacy and want to be single for the rest of your life? Good, because I just wanted to make sure that we all knew who you were, so, <laughs> so we don't waste our time with you, you know what I mean? So, I mean, seriously, okay? We, we just all want to make sure we knew who you were. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, in case you didn't know, sitting in front, there, nobody raised their hand, okay? So everybody's game, okay? Everybody, everybody's game in this church. All right, okay. Brief recap from last week as we launch into this, and I'm so excited, you guys, that have, I'm kind of withholding my, I've never preached on this in the five-year history of our church. Look, here's, here's where we've been. As we talked about counterculture living, we talked about sex last week. And we said that God created sex for intimacy and whole life oneness. That is, God created sex as nonverbal communication, if you will, to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. And it is a vehicle in which you communicate to the other person. And in the context of a permanent, exclusive, legal, covenant marriage relationship, Sex results in intimacy, deep soul nurture, radical life transformation. Why? Every single one of us in this room is born with this. We're born with an inherent need for intimacy. We're born with this, with inherent need to connect with somebody at the deepest level. None of us likes being alone. None of us likes being uh, 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 sort of unfulfilled, if you will, when it comes to connection and relationships. And that longing is something that God put there to connect with another person. And here's the thing. Intimacy is when you are not afraid and you can be completely who you are and not afra- be not afraid of rejection. Intimacy is when you're in a context of a relationship and that person says, I know everything about you. What you do behind closed doors, what you do when, it's, when you're alone, what you do in your thought life, everything about you, the good, the bad, the dark places, and yet intimacy is one in which someone says, but I still love you, but I still accept you, but I still embrace you. Every single one of us, lifelong journey and search for that. The problem is we don't experience that very often. We are afraid, we're we're insecure, we're even within the context of Christian community. Now think about this. So in the context of a committed, exclusive relationship, there's nothing, there are very few things that are more vulnerable than taking your clothes off and exposing all of who you are to another human being. But here's a powerful thing. When there's a context in which you have been emotionally naked, in other words, you have shared your entire life with that person because you're not afraid. In that context, when you also get physically naked and you give of yourself, it results in completion. Emotional nakedness, physical nakedness coming together, and it results in transformation, wholeness, closure. But it works the other way too. That is, when you haven't given yourself in every way to another person, there are areas of your life that are independent. and you give your body physically, you give yourself physically to that person. It does the opposite of developing trust, sense of intimacy, sense of closure. It actually erodes your ability to entrust yourself. Erodes the ability to give of other areas of your life. Why? You don't have a promise from that person that says, I am here no matter what. 
You don't have a promise from that person that says, this is permanent. You don't have a promise from that that says, well, this is exclusive. You do not have a promise from that person that says, for life, forever. And in that context, giving of yourself physically, this is a reason why, I, I said this last week, for those singles of you that are Christians that have been sexually active, it makes it more difficult for you to trust somebody, not easier. It makes it more difficult for you to be emotionally and whole life vulnerable with somebody, not easier. Oh, sure. Sex is sex, physical, sure. But the scripture says sex was meant for whole life on this. And when in that context, it results in deep soul nurture. It's a powerful, powerful tool. It's an incredibly powerful tool that God gave us. And yet, people in our culture use it as if it's just physical need. It's just sex. No, it's not. It's not just sex. Whole life, oneness. Disclaimer. uh, Parents or folks with younger children, and I need to say this, what we're going to talk about today will be absolutely biblical and hopefully godly, but we are going to be very frank. So if you feel that this would be an inappropriate topic for some of your younger children, uh, I would ask in all seriousness that that you uh, take them uh, out. Is is that okay? Yeah. Uh, The topic that we're going to talk about today is going to be very, very honest and blunt. Okay? All right. Let me begin here. Ernest Becker wrote a book called Denial of Death. And in that book, he had a powerful premise for why we live in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with romance and finding that someone. He makes the premise that uh, we are the first, perhaps, society in history that lives with the widespread belief that there's no such thing as an afterlife. Widespread belief that your personal consciences, that this life is all there is to it. That once you die, that's it. There's no eternity. There's no afterlife. There's nothing. This life is all there is to it. And so this society came up with this obsession with the need for romance and finding that one. Why? Here's how you describe it. When you, even a secular society like ours, even a society that doesn't have this belief in the afterlife, even a society that says your personal consciousness, once you die, it's It's extinct. There's nothing more to it afterwards. Even a society like that has to find meaning for now. Even a society like that and people that live in that world says, but I need to make sure that life matters. There's a reason for me to get up in the morning. I need to have a reason and a purpose for why I do what I do. But if you live in a society that denies the existence of God, existence of the future, existence of what happens after... How are you going to make sense of this life here and now? The solution, Ernest Becker says, was the romantic solution. The longing that you and I have to find significance, sense of worth, sense of meaning in life, sense that this life is meaningful. There's a purpose to this. The way to replace God in that is to replace that with it's him. It's her. It's the It's the, it's the search. It's the seeking. The 
That's what we live in a breathe. We live and breathe in our culture. I mean, you guys count the number of TV shows that deal with finding that one. Is that just because it's just popular culture and people just kind of like? There is a voracious hunger in our culture. Why? How else are you going to make sense of your life? How are you going to make sense of your day-to-day existence if there is no future? There is no God. I think he's onto something. I think he's onto something. Now, here's what the Bible says, though. The Bible has some radical things to say about marriage and singleness. And the Bible says that our culture solution to dealing with this, our culture solution dealing with this, by finding that one, by the romance, and by 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 the thrill of the seek, he says, neither of those. is what is ultimately going to fill you. Open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, Today's sermon is sort of going to be in two parts. I'm going to do kind of a, a, hopefully a shorter thing on singleness and what the Bible has to say about singleness because the Bible does say something about singleness directly. And then the second part is I'm going to try to answer that question that many of you are asking, which is how do I know he's the one? How do I know that she is the one? Okay? So, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. In other words, Paul is responding to a bunch of questions that people in the church of Corinth wrote. It is good for a man not to marry. Guys, ladies too. Paul doesn't mess around. He says, it is good for us to not marry. Okay? Now, jump down to, uh, (laughs) if you thought that was radical, look at what he says in verse 7. I wish that all men were as I am. He's talking about singleness. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Three times in this short passage, he says, it's not just okay to be single. He says, it's good. I affirm it. To which we say, you're crazy. (laughs) Paul, you have no idea. Actually, he does have an idea. He's a single guy. Okay? And please, for those people that say, well, he was one of those sore Christian loser guys, you know, that no women would be after anyway, so you know, problem. Come on. Verse uh, 8. It's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Verse 9. But if they cannot control themselves, <laughs> they should marry. For it is marry, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. How many of you are just burning with passion? <laughs> It's so funny. Okay, verse 25. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Don't seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Thank you, Paul. That's good to know. 
We're not in sin, married people. That's good to know, right? And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you of this. Verse 29, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as they had none, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if they were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world uh, uh, as not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. For many of us reading this in year 2007, it falls flat. But what Paul says here is absolutely radical and absolutely revolutionary for the time. Why? Paul is writing in a time in which there was no such thing as individual honor, individual success, individual achievement. Your family was everything to you. You only had family honor, family success, family achievement. So you had to be married. You had to have a family. There's no identity, no significance, and no worth apart from family. That's the culture in which Paul is writing. And yet he says to these Christians, yes, I know, you live in a culture where there's no identity, significance, worth apart from family. There's no such thing as individual significance and worth. And yet he says, I encourage you, if you are not married, stay as you are. Radical. Absolutely radical. And why does Paul say that? Professor Duke, a scholar at Duke, writes, unlike other religions, Christianity sees singleness as a legitimate way of life. Paul and Jesus both say that some people will choose not to be married. This was revolutionary in ancient societies. It broke the absolute need for families. Now creating a family was not something that everyone had to do. Christianity was absolutely amazingly unique in saying that it was okay and affirmed your singleness. Rodney Stark, a church historian, an expert in first century church says, if Christian women became widows, they enjoyed substantial advantages over women around, other women around. The other women faced great societal pressure to remarry. Caesar Augustus had widows fined if they failed to marry within two years. Because single adulthood was absolutely illegitimate. You had no significance apart from your family. You had no future apart from your family. You had no security apart from your family. But among Christians, widowhood was highly respected and the church stood ready to sustain widows, allowing them a choice whether to be married or not. What Paul says here is absolutely radical. But it's not just what Paul says. Isn't it kind of radical to hold a biblical perspective today in our culture? Do we not live and breathe in a culture that holds up the romance and 
finding that one as the absolute ideal in life? Do we not live and breathe in a culture where if you're single and not dating, if you're single and not with somebody, if you're single and, God forbid, uh, content? (laughs) Even your Christian friends around you go, what's wrong with you? Oh, and ladies and gentlemen, for those of us in the church, can we pick on the church a little bit too? The reality is, come on, that's why you come to our church. People come to our church and go, why is there so many singles in your church? Because you felt like a spiritual leper in churches where they elevated the marriage as the highest ideal. And if you're single, you kind of got that whole, well, we're glad you're here, but you know, make sure you get married soon, okay? You go to a Christian bookstore. You see tons of books on marriage and better marriages. And the books on singleness is along the lines of, How to cope with being single. (laughs) How to cope with being single. Why is that? Because even the Christian community, we've elevated the marriage as the ideal state. Something that everyone should strive for. If you're not married, it's second best. You haven't got your goals achieved. You're not exactly, look, am I just, is this, am I just talking nonsense or is this true? It's true. No wonder we have single Christian women. Can I just, I got this email from a sister in our church, and thank you, thank you, thank you, because she hit a nerve. I think a lot, listen to what she says. She talks about how she grew up in a church where they did the whole just say no pledges, and then she talks about how she did that with six other women, her friends, but all, uh, all of them except her have broken the pledges. And I've just kind of been like, I'm going to have sex, I'm going to do my thing. And she hasn't listened to what she says. She says, I cannot tell you how awkward it feels to be a 26-year-old virgin. Instead of of, uh, having pride for being able to hold out and wait for what God has for me, I feel frustrated, angry, and embarrassed and alone. To be perfectly honest, I feel like God didn't hold up his end of the bargain. I did what I was supposed to do, and instead of a reward, I get to watch all my friends get married while I remain what seems like hopelessly single. When I get to a point in a new friendship where we begin to discuss sexual histories, I get to A, attempt to avoid the subject, B, not along as though I understand and can agree, or C, tell them the truth. And when I tell them the truth, I get shocked, awe, questioned, and worst of all, pity. This is the case no matter if the, friend is new, if the new friend is a Christian or not. I understand the benefits of remaining a virgin. I still want whatever it is that God has as my future. And I mentally understand that God should be enough for me. But quite frankly, I'm tired of waiting, tired of explaining myself to others, and I'm tired of being ignored by God. Do you know why we have an entire culture of singles who wrestle like this? Because their singleness has never been affirmed in the church. Pastors and leaders haven't gotten up and said, are you single? That's awesome. Without. (laughs) What does the Bible say? Why does the Bible affirm singleness? Let me just like just plow right through it because I do want to get to the whole, how do I know she's the right one part, okay? Why does Paul encourage us to be as he is? Number one, real quick, number one. Uh, Jesus was single. <laughs> Roll of the eyes. Yeah, Jesus was single. Whatever. <laughs> no, listen, listen. Come on, come on, come on. Jesus was single. Listen, listen, listen. Why do I say that? Because if you believe what the Bible says, 
You believe that Jesus is the ultimate standard of humanity. He is the perfect man. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of truth, of beauty, of grace. Jesus is the standard of humanity to which all other humanity is judged. In our vernacular, we say things like, we all want to be like Jesus. We all want to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And we never think about it in the context of, he was single and celibate. Why? Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of man, of humanity. That's why it's nonsense to say you can't really be happy or content or satisfied being single. Jesus was all of the above, and yet he was a single, celibate man. Jesus was single, perfect embodiment of humanity. Second reason. Those of you that are paying attention say, Peter, but you know what? Two weeks ago, you preached on the whole marriage thing, right? And didn't you say there that uh, marriage was created by God because Adam was alone and we need a connection and community and, and isn't that a good thing? To which I go, marriage is beautiful in paradise when there's no sin. You know what Paul's point here? Everything in all the creation has been affected and tainted by sin and in disrepair, and that includes marriage. Marriage is under the influence and effect of sin. Can I be blunt? It's enough for one sinner, redeemed by the grace of God, to spend his or her entire life working on their issues to be more like Christ. You add two of them together, it's exponentially more explosive. Are you tracking? Do you know why Paul says in marriage you'll have experienced many difficulties? Think about that context of marriage being under sin. Marriage has powerful recreational power. Marriage has the power to reprogram you. Marriage has the power to affect your self-image. Your spouse has enormous power to influence and change you for good. or for harm under the influence of, that's why Paul says relatively speaking marriage is neither better nor worse than singleness can I draw an imagery for you on what marriage is like okay and this picture somebody out in sea on a raft dying of thirst Picture somebody on a raft on a sea and they're looking around and surrounding them for miles and miles and miles is water and yet they can't drink it. There's nothing more sad and lonely than being in a terrible marriage. All these benefits of marriage, I can't. Terrible marriage will accentuate your loneliness. Think twice before you go, once I get married, all my problems will just begin. Third, Paul says, Paul says, the singleness is a gift. I asked earlier, half-jokingly, but I was also serious. There are some people who have the gift of celibacy. 
and they're okay being single. You know how you could spot them out? You know how you could spot them out? Besides the fact that they're never dating, so on and so forth. You know how you could spot them out? There's a sense of contentment. They're not paralyzed by being single. They're not consumed with anxiety and worry. They don't plan their calendar. They're perfectly content with being single. Do, are they lonely? Of course. Do they ever have desire? Of course they do. But the gift of celibacy, and I believe it's a gift, results in a sense of, I'm actually okay. I'm good. And they genuinely mean it. But what's Paul's point here? Paul's point is that singleness is a gift in this way. You may have the gift. Every single person here does not. But just like any other spiritual gift, whether you have it or not, you have the duty to obey it. I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'm just not going to witness to Christ, witness for Christ. The Bible says, it doesn't matter if you have the gift of evangelism, it is your duty to, when opportunity arises, to share Christ. Singleness, spiritual gift, you can't go, I don't have the gift, so I'm just going to, he says, whether you have the gift or not, you have the duty as a Christian to exercise chastity, exercise restraint, and godly. This is the most powerful, and I don't even, I don't even, uh, I'm not even going to pretend to explain this to all you guys, but listen to this. This Listen to this. Paul here accentuates the need for community. Paul accentuates the need for here in a way that he doesn't do in any other passage in the New Testament. Here's how he does it. He does it in the context of marriage and singleness, and he says this. He says marriage is just temporal. Marriage is temporary. Marriage is just just a a, a thing that's here now and won't be around in eternity. Marriage, as you know it, won't be around in eternity. And the way he says that is, everything in this world is passing away. Verse 31. And listen to this. The word pass away in Greek was a word that was used in theater of changing scenes. And he's saying, marriage is like a scene. You see it? That was beautiful. But here comes another scene. This is the argument that he makes. And he's talking about what Jesus said too. Jesus said this. Jesus said the same thing about marriage three times in the Gospels. One time he said this. One time he was teaching and a group of people were sitting around him and his mother and his brothers and sisters came. And somebody said, hey, Jesus, your brothers and sisters, your mother's here. And Jesus looks around and says, who are my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? You all are my mother. You all are my brothers and sisters. Those who obey God, those are my brothers He radically redefined family. Another occasion, listen to this. Somebody asked Jesus this question. It says, there's a woman. She's she's been married seven times. Why? Because every time she married somebody, that husband died. So she married the brother, that person died. And somebody said, in heaven, who will she be married to? And you would think Jesus is going to answer that question. She'll be married to the first or the last one. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, in heaven, we will neither marry nor be given in marriage like the angels are. Do you hear that? We will neither marry nor be given in marriage in heaven. What he was saying is we won't experience marriage as we know it. The world will pass away. Marriage will pass away. Scenes change. What the heck is Paul talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of God in this context when he says this present age. He is literally saying when Jesus Christ came for the first time, he ushered in the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. And he's going to come again to finish the job, rule and reign of God. But we live in this in-between period called the old age of sin and death. We're the already but not yet period. We live in the midst of redemption, renewal, but also sin. But in this time right now, in this time right now, in every facet of life, we get a foretaste, a glimpse, a taste of our future, a taste of our future hope, a taste of our future love, a taste of the world as we will want it to be right now. 
And he says, knowing that radically frees us from getting consumed with the things of this world, including marriage, including marriage, including family. Why? You know what Paul's saying? You're sitting next to the only family that will last forever. When the kingdom of God comes, you're not going to be first and foremost husband and wife. You're going to be brother and sister. You're sitting next to the only family that will last for all of eternity. (laughs) I know. You know, at home I was thinking about that, which is going to be two responses. Some people are going to go, yes. (laughs) And there's other of us, seriously, others of us going, This is as good as it's going to get. Do you know why we think that? Listen, listen. Partly because of the church and the community and the family of God is so jacked up. Can I say that? It's jacked up. Can I say that? It's jacked up. We have no idea how to do this together. Secondly, though, we have elevated marriage and family. Even before we, even without us realizing it, to such high ideals that we have placed our hopes and our dreams and our future. That when God comes and says, This is the real family that will last forever. It doesn't resonate. It doesn't resonate. This is why for those of us that may never get married or have children, you know what God says? That's okay because your ultimate hope is in the family of God. That's what will last forever. And for those of us that are married and with children, your children are not your hope and dreams. Your children are not the people that you entrust everything to. Why? Your children are just a sign of the hope that you have and the one who is going to come and renew all things. They're a gift. They're just a gift. Enjoy them for now. And this has huge ramifications about how we do community because, man, if this is the only family that will last forever, how jacked up is the church? I mean, I've said this before. The reason why I think single Christian men and women struggle so much with sexual purity is because we have no idea how to relate to men and women singles in healthy, godly ways. We don't. The need and longing that we have to genuine deep, have genuine deep friendships with someone of the opposite sex, we have no idea what that's like because we're... We live and breathe in a church culture no different from the culture out there. It's about playing games, about checking you out. It's about stringing somebody along. It's about, oh. The bent of the Bible is for singleness. It is for. You know what? The pastor inside of me, I'm going to tell you right now before we move on, the pastor inside of me says, singles, I wish that I could soften the blow. This young lady, I wish, actually, please do, I wish I could just give her a big hug and say, these are the biblical truths, and you have to live by them and, 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 and walk that person through because that's how God created the community to be. Singles, you cannot walk this journey by yourself. The scripture truths, of course we sit here and go, I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree, but it's still hard, and I can't do it alone, to which the Bible says, you were never meant to do it alone. 
So when are we, Christian community, going to wake up and realize that our attitude of going, you're single, well, it's your business. You're single, you take care of that on your own. You're single, good luck. Instead of doing that, we come around and go, I need you, I need you, I need you. We need each other. Because we cannot leave these biblical truths out alone by ourselves. All right, I'm done with that. How do you know that you have found Mr. Right? How do you know that you have found Mrs. Right, okay? Why? You don't care anymore? Should I flip it around? Where's she thinking? Come on, let's just say, you know. <laughs> Everybody minus the four women sitting in the front row. Listen, listen. For those of you that are just visiting us for the first time, listen. Most Sundays, most Sundays, we stick to a text and we delve into it. This is one of those rare Sundays where I'm going to bring out biblical principles, but it's still biblical. How do you know? How do you know? You got to go back to what a marriage is. Okay, you got to go back to what a marriage is. You got to go to what Bible says about what a marriage is, then begin to come back and ask the question of, if that's what marriage is, how do I? So, we talked about, first of all, the purpose of marriage. We said that the purpose of marriage was for what? Everybody say it together. Purpose of marriage is? <laughs> well, that's, that's better than somebody going, Sex! Say this with me. The purpose of marriage is friendship. Okay? Purpose of marriage is friendship. Genesis 2, 18 does not say, and God said, it is not good that the man is horny. (laughs) My wife hates it when I say that word in church. (laughs) That and orgasm, too, where she's like, will you please not say those words in church? It also doesn't say it is not good for man to have nothing to do on a Saturday night. It says it is not good for the man to be alone. And we said that God created marriage for friendship. The Hebrew word used to describe the wife in the Old Testament is halup, which means covenant partner, covenant companion. God created marriage for deepest of friendship and companionship. Simply put, your husband is supposed to be your best friend. Your wife is supposed to be your absolute best friend. And that is all kinds of ramifications of what we look for in a spouse. Asking the question, is he right? Is she right? Do they have the potential to be my number one counselor, my best friend? Do they have the potential to meet that need? Some of you are too scared to commit. I don't get to you later. But some of us are too ready. Some of us are like, I think she looks hot. I'm ready. I think he's really cute. I'm ready. Some of us are way too ready for jumping into a relationship. We are. They may look right. They have the right connections. You may be in love or be infatuated. But these are all, there are all kinds of areas in which they won't even come close to being your best friend, your number one counselor. So here's a sub-question that needs to be asked to which I know for a fact. Don't put it up yet. There are going to be those of you that are going to say, oh, f- This church was different. Here it is. (laughs) 
Is it up there? The question is, is this person a Christian? Is this person a Christ follower? No, 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 hold on, hold on. Before some of you just tune me out and go, okay, I'm done. Before you just tune me out and say, I'm done, okay? For those of you guys that came, for those of you that are not Christian and that came with the Christian friend, I'm so glad you're here. Dating, I'm so glad you're here because you need both to hear this. This has nothing to do with being a fundamental, look, if you've sat through today's service, you already know. We're not a fundamentalist church. We're also not a narrow-minded church. Here's the reason why I say this. Listen, the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with, don't you want them to know you to your depths? Don't you want them to understand who you are? Don't you want them to understand the role that Jesus plays in your life and what he wants to do in and through you? Don't you want this person to understand what makes you tick, what gets you up in the morning? What gives you life? The things that we look for, just let out in a best friend. So, if you are a Christian and you're willing to date a non-Christian or be in a new relationship, be honest, call it what it is. Either you don't want that person to be your best friend or Jesus is not all that important to you. If you are willing to be in a relationship with a non-Christian, a serious relationship with, flat out, just be honest here. Either you don't want that person to be your best friend who understands you to your depths, or you're not all that serious about Jesus and his role in your life. I don't want to say this just to be mean. I'm just... A relationship that has this kind of depth... this kind of longevity, this kind of amazing, soul-nurturing ability. How can you have deep relationships with somebody who doesn't understand you to your depths? Relationship with somebody who doesn't understand what is the foundational motivation for why you do everything. Why should you only seriously date and marry a Christian? Some people are going to complain and say, you know, that just narrowed down a whole list of candidates for me. No, you know what it did? It just deepened your understanding of what a marriage is. It just narrowed down my list of candidates. No, it didn't. It just forced you to not be superficial. I love you. Even if you go, you know what? You know why I'm dating not Christian? Because Jesus really isn't all that important to my life. He isn't. Or, you know what? I'm dating this Christian because I think he's hot. Or I think she's hot. And we have a lot of fun together. Just be honest. I'll embrace you for it. But please, please, please. Don't come talk to me about missionary dating. Come on. Is this too harsh? Is it reality check? See, this is the shepherding pastoral side of me. See, it pains me to say this because I know there are lots of you out there going... I know it forces me to a deeper understanding of marriage. I know it forces me to not be superficial. But gosh darn it, Peter, Christian men, not so much. <laughs> oh, ladies, you laugh. You know what Christian guys say? I'll be flat out. You know what Christian guys say? And I'm going to get to you a little bit. You know what Christian guys say? Honestly. And they're very honest about it. She's just not physically attractive enough. Flat out. We both have issues. We both have issues. I'm getting depressed. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not. Reality check. Can this person be your best friend? 
Can this person be your best friend? Can this person have the ability to understand who you are? Is this person someone who has potential to be your kindred spirit? What makes or breaks a marriage is not romance. It's not sexual chemistry. What makes or breaks romance, oh, marriage is friendship. Knowing that that person understands you to your depths, embraces you to your depths. That person will be there no matter what. They know everything about you and they say, I love you. That's what makes a marriage. That's the backbone of a marriage. There are prospects that you guys are screening out because they just don't look right. There are prospects you are screening out because you have in your mind a designer spouse. Can we just call it what it is? Can we just call it what it is? Can we just call it what it is? I said this before. We need to grow up. There's tons of people out there who would be phenomenal friends and phenomenal spouses, but you have ruled them out. Because they don't look right. Second question, subset. We got to move, we got to move. Second is, can you change each other for the better? What do you look for? Can you change each other for the better? Conflict is normal. Conflict is inevitable. But the real issue is not whether you have conflicts or not. The real issue is what is the end result of that conflict? Do you find that you're able to solve problems together in a healthy biblical way? Do you have a track record of conflict resolution? Do you have battle scars, scrapes from being in confrontations and battles, but at the same time testimony that you came out on the other side, other end, better? Can this person point out things in your life and do it in a way that's winsome? Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one sharpens another. Is this person sharpening you? Are you a better person, more generous person, more gracious person as a result of this person in your life? Do you find that the relationship drains you? Are you more secure or insecure? Are you you less generous, less gracious? Can you say, here's a whole list of things in which they have changed me for the better. Here's a whole list of things in which I'm a better Christian, a better man, and a better woman as a result of them. Do you have a list like that? Can you make a list like that? Are they willing to change? Are they adaptable? Can they spot your needs and recognize your desires? Is a person able to give and receive affection? Are they able to understand you and make themselves understood? These are all the basic things you want in a friendship. And they are 10 to 15 times more important when you're considering, are you the right one, Matt? If you find a non-Christian who differs from you in ideals, visions for life, and you have fun together, and there's erotic romance chemistry, Christian, Christ follower, Do you really want a lover and just that? Or do you want a best friend? Priority of marriage. Secondly, priority of marriage. We talked about no relationship being more fundamental than the husband and wife. The primary relationship even more important than parent-child. Our relationship to our parents. The relationship between husband and wife is the most important relationship of all relationships. Marriage sets the course of your life as a whole. 
As we said, vehicle redemption. If your marriage is strong and all the other areas of your life are weak, you can move out into the world in strength. And if your marriage is weak, however, even though all the other areas of your life, your work, your career, other friendships are strong, you will not be able to move out into the world in strength. So the key question is this, are you heading in the same direction? Are you heading in the same direction? And I'm not just talking about spiritually. Can your callings be coordinated? In other words, we are all called to be a follower of Christ, but there are other callings in our lives about where we work, what job we do, various parts in the kingdom mission. Are your gifts and ministry interests moving in the same direction? Can you walk alongside each other gladly and support each other willingly? Let me just give some very specific examples. Some of you love the city. You want to be in the city. You want to raise your family in the city. And yet the person you're dating goes, I hate the city. It drains me. As soon as, I get, as soon as I get married and have kids, I am moving out to that wonderful, wonderful world called the suburbs. <laughs> to which those of us city folk go, that's like exile. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a step up. You know, suburbs don't want, you know, young couples, you know, high property taxes. They have, they have very sort of ways of going, we don't want you here. Secondly, financial expectation. Some of you are called to live very simply. Uh, others of us, not so much, which is okay. We're not judging you, but you got to be, you got to be honest. You got to talk. Some of us are called to involuntary poverty. Uh, ladies, you better want to ask your man. I got to ask you something. Are you called to involuntary poverty? Are we going <laughs> to... Are we going to be poor for the rest of our lives? Because I can do it, but you better tell me now. Some of us, here are the questions that we need to ask. Levels of church involvement you desire. Some of us call to be involved in the local church. That's where you want to serve. That's where you want to be. Others of us have a calling for outside the local church. Can you support each other? Be radically supportive and do this together. Because some of you are like, I want to be in the local church. This is where I want to serve, inside the church. And others are like, I have vision for. And you're caught. Can they be coordinated? Okay? Is there clearly the issue? What about things like this? Roles within the marriage. Who's going to wear the pants? I'm serious. I know some of us culture were like, what? No, seriously. Definition of roles of marriage. Definition of roles of marriage. Leadership. Need to talk about it. Things like this. When a first kid comes along, who stays home? For how long? How many children do you want to have? Do you want to have any children at all? How close do you want your families to be? Look, can I just pick on Christian college students? You live in a breathe in a culture where people go, I want a ring by spring. And guys, this is us, Christian college, I don't want to sin and have sex. And the only context in which I could have sex is to be married. So let's get married. Marriage is not playing house. World of difference. Marriage is not playing house. Ring by spring is okay. but make sure you're mature enough to handle the responsibilities. 
Third, oh, so much time. Okay, let's third, third, the essence of marriage, the essence of marriage. We said the essence of marriage is a covenant, right? It's essence of a covenant that is you are making a public promise to be permanently, exclusively committed to sharing your entire life with someone. And this is simple. Do you have somebody that you can make this kind of a commitment to, given everything that we've talked about? Then you're ready for marriage. But the problem is, problem is, problem is, how do you really know? Let me address one issue that becomes a big hindrance. Because if you've been paying attention, some of you guys might be tempted to say, Peter, what about feelings? (laughs) Don't you need to like feel something for your wife, you know? When you saw Jenny, were you, oh, when I saw Jenny, I broke out in poetry like Genesis 2, let me tell you, okay? (laughs) There has to be feelings, right? I mean, there has to be feelings and affection. And I'm not downing that. I'm not, look, in case you guys thought like, Peter, do you, like, are you, like, living in the, I am living in the real world, but you know what? Do you know why I didn't start there? For obvious reasons. Here's the number one question I get asked. Peter, what happens when I get in a relationship and either I I lose my feelings for them or I don't have as strong feelings for them or it's just not there? What then? What then? One, change in perspective. What do I mean? The number one reason why we don't have that in a relationship is because our notions, our notions of what a good marriage is or a good marriage partner is still so wedded to our old understanding that when you come to that place, you're going, I don't have, you know what I hear often? You know what I hear often? People going, you know, Peter, I just don't have it like I did with him. Or I just don't have it like I did with her. You know what? The reason why you don't is because this person that is great for you, they were screened out before. That's why those feelings and emotions are not there. You had those for that person that you had an erotic sexual attraction for. But how long did that last? And where did that go? Do you know why we don't have feelings? Whether we realize that subconsciously, our our, our understanding is so wedded to the old understanding of marriage and relationships that when we see someone who is great for us, we go, how come I don't? That's because you got to say to yourself, feelings? I'm feeling you because of a false and pathological understanding of what a marriage and good relationship is. I'm going to call you out on what it's doing in my life. How many of you guys have been in a relationship where you're like, I just don't feel though, and you have reverence, remembrance and collection of, yeah, but I did with, what was the basis of that relationship? Change in perspective, secondly, secondly, lack of communication. In other words, if the feelings and passions are not there, it could be that there's something that you're not communicating. It could be that callings are dissimilar. It could be that there's a problem that needs to be solved, but either you're unaware of it or a lot of times you're afraid to bring it out in the open. Communication. Just one quick example. Jenny and I hit our wall. I was hoping to give lots of examples, but without wife's permission, Jenny and I hit our wall like third year into our relationship. I was like 25, 26, and Jenny was actually in medical school. And I started, you know, the whole thing of like, man, I just don't, I know it'd be hard, hard, hard press for you guys to believe this, but I was like, it's that, 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 that's just not there. What's going on? And two things I realized. Number one, when I had that relationship with somebody else, it was wedded, so I was able to go, okay, got it. But the second thing was this. Second thing was, 
She wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to go into ministry. And for whatever stupid reason, I couldn't see us coordinating that. And that was because of my pathological false understanding relationship, right? And we hit this wall, and I could see us growing distance. And so one night, we had the talk. It was in her dorm room. We had the talk. I said, oh, Jenny, you know, I mean, it's, it's great and all, but I got to tell you, there's something just, something just isn't right. Like, what is it? Well, I got to just come out and ask, and I need your answer tonight. Are you willing to give up medicine for me? She looked at me with those beady little piercing eyes. <laughs> I am not even exaggerating. She looked at me and she said, are you willing to give up ministry for me? And that's when I knew, ladies and gentlemen, she's the one. Oh, yes. She's the one. She's the one. Do you know that it took me five months to get the nerve to be honest and open and have this conversation with her? Some of you need to do that today when you go home. You need to have that conversation. A couple of things. For some of us, you're just, you're just a serial commitment phobic person. In other words, you're that person. I need to speak to you. You are that person. You will get to the very end of that relationship and you will find something. You'll find something, you know. Her fingernails are just too big. I don't know. You will find something. Some ridiculous thing to go, I just can't. And you know what? I need to speak to you. You know who I'm talking to. You need to get over it. You need to, get, you need to stuff your feelings and you need to, if you're a man, you need to, <laughs> you need to, you need to, you need to, you n o Do you see why that's important? Do you know how many Christian men hurt godly, beautiful Christian women because they genuinely care about them, they genuinely want to be with them, but because they can't can't get over that fear of what if my life and commitment are permanent, at the very end, they come up with some stupid excuse like, I just feel the Lord just, the Lord? The Lord? Don't bring God into it. Just man up and go, I'm too scared to commit. I have a false and pathological understanding of what a marriage is. I am sorry. I need to grow up. Oh, I got to, oh. Keep going. Okay, okay, just two, two more things. Okay, two more things. Look, look, look. Uh, this is the reason why I say we need, we need community. Look, look, can I just, look, this, can I? Community, look, if you, are, if you are serious about somebody, you are serious about somebody, I encourage you, be, be, I encourage you, you have, to, you have to have your community of people, the people that you love and care about, you have to have, that, have some time to interact with this man or this woman. Do not, do not, do not commit to a long-term relationship. Do not let those words, I love you, come out of your mouth. Do you remember what I said? Do not, because once they come out, you can't take them back. I love ice cream. <laughs> listen, listen, listen. Guys, I feel, once you say I love you, 
You have done something to the woman's heart that will never, you will never be able to take back. Never. Of course, it doesn't mean anything to you, but to the woman. Listen, before you utter those words, listen. You have to have them spend time, and you have to be courageous enough to say to your people, your small group, do you see our callings being coordinated? Do you see us making each other for the better? Do you think we're sharpening each other? Do you think we would do greater things for God together than we would alone and listen to what they have to say? You cannot make this decision. And here's the thing. If you don't want to do that because you're afraid of what they'll say, that is speaking volumes. <laughs> you guys are so funny. It's like the little amen choir over here. Can I get some guys to sit between them? I mean, it's like mass momentum. Community, 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 community. Before I marry anybody, I will ask, have you guys gotten the blessing of your friends and family? Why? Legalistic? No. They see something that you won't. Okay. One thing. I got to answer this question, and then I have, to, I have to talk about the gospel. I have to talk about the gospel. Listen, listen. How do I know? How do I know she's the one? How do I know? Because we have this understanding that says, if I just look carefully enough, if I just, I will find the one. Here is theology from Pastor Peter. You're always going to marry the wrong person. Oh! <gasps> You know why? You have no idea who you're marrying when you marry them. Marriage is so powerful. Oh, you think you know who you're marrying? Wait a few years. <laughs> the person that you marry will not be the person three years from now, five years from now, six years from now. You never marry the right person. You always marry the wrong person. You have no idea who you're married to. So you sit there and go, I have this list, and I, are you kidding me? Wait, give them two years, and you're going to go, who are you? <laughs> Do you know what that means? That means, here's another image. When you're looking for the marriage partner, you're not looking for a beautiful, finished sculpture, work of art. You're looking for a big old block of marble that you can say to each other, let's go on this journey together. You sharpen me, I sharpen you. We're going to go on this journey together. We're going to fail. We're going to have conflicts. But I'm not out to find this. Be- I'm out to find that person who says, I want to go on this journey with you. And if you could find somebody. Now, ladies, this doesn't mean you go, big block of marble, that's exactly what I wanted. Somebody I can control and shape and mold and do what I want to To which the guys go, that's why I don't want to get married. I don't want to be in a relationship like that. That's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) You guys understand what I'm saying? How do I know she's the right one? How do I know she's the right one? Answer, you don't. You don't. The cross You know what I would say to the young lady and those of you that are here? 
It's interesting how the Bible portrays how you overcome sexual temptation. I go back to this again and again and again because one of these days you guys will get how the gospel helps you overcome sexual temptation. Here's what I mean. Joseph, Genesis. Joseph overcomes the Pharaoh's, uh, the Potiphar's wife's advances by saying, how can I do this and sin against God? But what about Pharaoh? What about, no, how can I do this and sin against God? Joseph reveals in his words a secret and the key and the power to how you overcome sexual temptation. And furthermore, Being godly single, that isn't, listen, repress my inner desires. I got to repress my inner desires because you can't, I can't. You have to find something outside of you that will enhance your desires for something else. You can't overcome sexual temptation by more discipline. You keep me accountable. The only way you become sexual temptation is if you find something more beautiful, more powerful, more attractive than what that has to offer. And you know what that is? It's called the gospel. His name is Jesus. And Jesus basically says, the way you overcome those temptations and single, look, is not, I'm going to get rid of these desires. No, it's reprioritizing your desires in such a way that Jesus has prominence in your life. Listen, there are many of you who say, I get it. No, you don't. Because if the gospel and the beauty of Jesus has really transformed your heart, there's delight in obedience there is pleasure in obedience there isn't just i'm just gonna go. there is god it's hard and it's it's a struggle but at the end of the day your love your unconditional acceptance of me your beauty in my life who you are in me that's enough for me it's hard but unless you preach gospel to your day every day of life you're enough for me you're enough for me you're enough for me being single and listening and waiting for god will be this enormous ordeal to go when god when and god comes and says make me make me your love let's pray together God, God, you know my heart, and you know that my heart just really aches for the single men and women in our church. And God, I hope, I hope I was able to communicate your truth in love. That for the men and women in our church who wrestle and struggle being single and being celibate, being pure for you, And do it because they've embraced the gospel, not do it just for obedience sake or duty's sake. But do it in a way that results in joy. God, that's impossible apart from your spirit. That's impossible apart from the working of your spirit and your ministry that whispers to us, you are my beloved. I love you. I care about you. I love you. I care about you. I love you. I care about you. I'm enough for you, child of God. Child of God. So God, I just, I pray. Even as we enter into this time of communion, 
the very thing that symbolizes God, your sacrifice for us. that enables us to enjoy intimacy, depth of love. Remind us today, God, as we take of the bread and drink of the cup, that your body and your blood that was shed for us on the cross answers once and for all, God, what am I here for? What do I live for? And God, I pray as always for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. That as they come, genuinely, God, genuinely expressing their hurt, their anger, their frustrations, you would embrace them, you would love them. And the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me. And after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the the, the representation of the new covenant that says that we do not come based on our own merits and our own goodness, but based on the mercy and grace of God shed through his son Jesus thank you Lord thank you Lord in Jesus name community service please come forward guys spend a moment I know we ran a little late but I'd love for you to spend a moment in your seats prayerfully reflecting and listening to the Holy Spirit as he comes. Express your desire, your frustrations. Uh, Carl and Sandra, can I have you guys come over this way just a little bit so if people want to spend some time in front of the cross, they can. Lord invites you, child of God, whenever you're ready, stand and come forward. Worship team will lead us. Worship and pray alone. Worship and God, we worship you and we praise you. God, the reality is you are enough for us. And in this daily battle, God, in the culture that we live in that would have us believe otherwise, whether it be romance or relationship or anything else, bring us to that place daily and moment by moment where we would preach the gospel to our souls every day, saying you are enough for us. You are enough for me. Thank you, Father, for this time of ministry. Pray for encouragement and strength as my brothers and sisters go forward, live their lives for you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all of God's people say, all of God's people say, hey, quick thing, the transportation, transportation out in the foyer area, students, don't go home, check with them. Secondly, there's a free health clinic happening in the fellowship hall. So go check it out. Third, married couples, counseling resources at our connection table if you need them. Anybody else need prayer, come forward. These lovely people up here would love to pray with you and for you along with our prayer team. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next Sunday. Take care, guys.